Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today we have yet another undertaking in which I will go well out of my area of expertise into territory that I really have no business talking about, um, but feel obligated to bring up and discuss, at least in some degree, lest it go silently. Um, we need to talk about queer theory and the queer attitudes towards love. And, good grief, all of the caveats. Um, Obviously, I am not a member of the queer movement, or maybe not so obviously, I suppose we all could be at some level. Um, I am not, though, or at least, you know, if I said that I was, I would be sort of arrogating quite a bit to myself, uh, making quite a few assumptions about what membership would in fact imply. Um, I also don't know a whole lot about the subject. It's complicated and very new, which is something that is not terribly friendly to academic study, honestly. Um, when we talk about academia, when we've talked about, you know, what constitutes, quote, important texts, important work, um, I should very much stress that academia only moves very slowly. Um, and sort of becoming aware of a cultural movement or a discussion that's going on in popular culture, um, as much as there will be sort of hot takes immediately upon coming or upon these things happening, you know, much as you will find on the internet, and as much as academics will always be engaging in interviews where they're talking about, you know, fairly recent events, the texts that are in fact really important, the, the discussion that takes place that sort of acknowledges, you know, this thinker was really important to this movement, or this idea expressed in this text is really important to, you know, this discussion, these things only come about years after the discussion is had, in some sense. Um, you'll notice that of all of the readings we've had so far in this class, um, by far the most recent is Virginia Held's essay that we discussed last time, um, specifically that whole ethics of care business, which she published in 2006. Um, and that itself is misleading. The discussion of virtue ethics leading into the discussion of the ethics of care had been going on for a little while up until that point. Uh, Held is literally just summarizing what had been going on in the 80s, the 90s, and the early 2000s. Um, so as much as she is the one that I ended up quoting, that's largely because she had sort of tailor-made that essay um, in part of her overarching book which had summarized her thoughts as well as the thoughts of many other scholars for quite a while. If we ignore Held's essay, we end up back at Bayer, which is in the 80s, and it's only going to get worse from there. Um, the fact of the matter is, most scholarship, as far as you know, what's going on in popular culture, what's going on in, among popular movements, what's going on politically, etc., 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 you know, the essays that constitute being worthwhile, being important enough to, you know, make it to my syllabus in some sense, usually have a pretty hard date of, like, 1985 or so. Um, by which I mean, like, anything more recent than 1985 is untested. Um, yes, there are a whole bunch of important works or things that I consider important or important texts that, you know, I've bumped into since 1985, Sure, but I don't have the confidence in them that I do have in something like, you know, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, which everybody has read and everybody knows is important, 
and everybody recognizes it as the central pillar of feminism because people have been discussing it for years and years and years and years, and everybody agrees that it is significant to the history of philosophy, that in all likelihood, 100, 200 years from now, we'll still be reading Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, still think that it's important, at the very least as an insight into her particular moment in history. We can't say the same about Annette Byers' essay, or about Virginia Held's take on, on the ethics of care. Perhaps a better summary will appear as we get, you know, more familiar with this area of study. All this to say, the queer movement is way more recent, and as a consequence, it is also considerably more untested. Um, the two writers that I'm including here, Foucault, which, you know, it seems like I can never get too far away from Foucault in this class, um, and Warner, on the other hand, both of them are relatively well-tested. Like, when I was originally coming up with material for my ethics class, I wanted to do a day on sexual ethics, um, and I wanted to talk about the queer movement, and I wanted to talk about sort of uh, the discussion that was being had about sexual ethics in that respect. Um, and literally the three essays that we're talking about today are the same ones that I found then. Um, part of the reason there is because I did a fairly substantial amount of research back in 2017 when I was putting that together. Part of it, too, is just because I did some cursory research this time around and discovered there's still kind of the ones that are most important. Like, you search for for syllabi that people have posted on the internet for a queer studies class, and those texts frequently come up. Um, now, I should stress, Foucault is writing in the 80s, and Warner is writing at the end of the 90s. Like, The Trouble with Normal was published in 1999 originally. Um, so both of them are very recent by academic standards, and yet very new and thus untested as a consequence. But I should also stress, as far as popular culture are concerned, Foucault and Warner are both geriatric as far as the queer movement today is concerned. Um, I don't know what the kids are doing these days, so to speak. I don't know what the queer movement looks like today. Not as much as I understand that, you know, these are the important texts that have sort of brought us to this point. Which is to say, like, I do have an ear to the ground. Like, I, too, go on the internet. I, too, am listening to, you know, trans and, and other queer um, spokespeople on YouTube, you know, reading blog posts by people who are talking about this discussion. Um, but at the same time, like, as much as I might find those things insightful, I don't find them as insightful as what I'm seeing here, and I'm not sure how many of those ideas I can trust to endure, if that makes sense. See, this is the delicacy about dealing with academic treatments of very modern and contemporary subjects. It's really hard to discern what is important and what is a passing fad, in a manner of speaking. Um, and the fact of the matter is that the internet has accelerated the process of popular culture developing its movements, developing its politics, developing its identity, to the point that in the last 20 years, much more exists about queer theory, much more change has occurred in the way that we understand gender, and the way that we understand, you know, sexuality, than occurred in literally the hundreds of years before that happened. Like... In this class, we've talked about, for lack of a better term, homosexuality 
from time to time. Like, we've talked about it as early as Plato and as recently as Foucault. Um, but the fact of the matter is that it didn't change a whole lot in that period of time. What the Greeks understood as homosexuality is the same as what the medievals understood as homosexuality, which is the same as what the moderns understood as homosexuality, which gets a little bit modified by Freud and the psychologists when they actually, you know, give it the name of homosexuality. Um, but still, it's just a little bit of moderation. The fact that we now live in a world where many people claim that they are ungendered or non-binary in some way, where we can actually scientifically, physically change someone from one gender to another, or at least change many of the characteristics that we associate with that gender, this is all wildly new ground. Um, this is all thirty, the past 30, 40 years, and that's it. Um, it very much, like, like, Foucault isn't even aware of half of the stuff that we're talking about today. And on the one hand, I want to acknowledge that, and I want to sort of talk about that, and I want to discuss what love looks like in these new contexts, now that we're talking openly about polyamory, now that we're talking openly about non-binary gender relationships, now that we're talking openly about asexuality. Um... On some level, yes, I want to discuss that because I suspect, honestly, that you're interested in that. Um, like, overwhelmingly, I get the sense that my students are taking my class on, on love and friendship largely with an eye towards understanding these things in the modern context. And the fact of the matter is, I am just wildly unequipped to talk about that. But that's kind of okay, I want to say. Because on the one hand, yes, it's exciting, and it's new, and it's a big deal, and a lot of people are talking about it, and a lot of people are taking these new directions. They are doing what Foucault is describing by creating new pleasure here in some sense. But I also want to stress that a lot of these paradigms, a lot of these sorts of discussions that we are having here in the 21st century, they fall into a lot of the traps that Foucault and Warner seem to anticipate. What Warner talks about as far as you know, the, the queer movement gaining respectability, I see that a lot in the internet discourse. And I don't see necessarily a lot of discernment um, in the internet discourse about these things. That's the trouble with internet discourse. Like, as much as it is pushing things forward and it is a great place for young people to sort of explore their ideas, explore their identity, explore their sexuality, I also tend to think that internet discourse is a vehicle for the same politics of shame um, that Warner is talking about in his essay. Um, I think it is very much a vehicle for the same sort of conformity enforcement that Foucault is worried about when he writes in the gay pied. Um, that's why I'm hesitant. On the one hand, yes, I do want to talk about these ideas, and I feel woefully inadequate to the task because I haven't been keeping up and I'm not part of these communities and I don't recognize what all is going on there. But at the same time, philosophy is so much about standing back from all of this activity that's going on and sort of trying to understand it in this, this larger historical context, in the larger context of, of questioning these assumptions, of, of sort of trying to get at what is underlying these discussions and sort of poke at that instead. On the one hand, I want to respect these opinions. On the other hand, I want to question these opinions. And I... I recognize the fact that I am not equipped to do either of these things. Um, so instead, 
rather than try and like dive into 21st century discourse about gender, sexuality, love, etc., I am looking instead from the perspective of the old guard. Um, and again, new as they may be, they are still the old guard as far as queer theory is concerned. And I am probably showing my distance from this movement as a consequence. Like, I am very self-conscious of this. I also don't really see a solution. Um, the fact of the matter is, to be plugged into these communities requires just that, to be plugged into these communities, for this to be a major part of your life. And that's just not what it is with me. I am interested in queer theory. I, you know, am interested in studying it. I definitely want to talk about it. I definitely want to engage with this subject again because I think that my students are really interested in this in this discussion. Um, but it's not my life, and I don't want it to become my life. And I'm not entirely sure I would encourage anyone to make it their life. Um, that's the trick here, if that makes sense. And I know I'm trying to tread lightly. I'm not going to succeed on this one. Um, I also want to stress that, again, because I am talking about the old guard, a lot of these ideas have been kicked out of the movement to some degree. And I'm not sure whether they were right to do that or not. That's not for me to question. Again, you know, no movement is univocal. There are discussions happening amongst the queer community that are every bit as violent and fierce as, um, you know, the, the discussions happening among Chris Christians or among Muslims. Like, this is a subject of great controversy. Um, and I don't think there are single answers here. Um, as much as there is a lot of anger and a lot of vitriol online about, you know, different perspectives and, and what constitutes a benefit for the movement and what constitutes a step backward, um, I can't get into the nuances of that because, again, it hasn't been determined yet. We don't have the benefit of hindsight to say, yes, seeking after respectability was a mistake, or no, seeking after respectability was an important stage in our development and got us the political freedoms we need to be able to question more deeply the heteronormative aspects of sexuality and the assumptions that that has dragged along with it. It's complicated. It is painfully complicated. Um, the advantage we have in studying Foucault's 1980s and Warner's 1990s is that these are safely in the past. Um, we can look at these phenomena as hermetically sealed environments, things, things that we have grown beyond. Um, we can talk about them in a way that we can't talk about the people and lives that are happening right now, because we don't have the advantage of objectivity in this case. To put, to try and sort of encapsulate all this, I am not going to tell anyone what their life is supposed to look like today. At all. I am going to make some sorts of advice, at least as far as I understand Foucault and Warner to be giving advice, and I recognize that it is not within my area of expertise to corroborate what they have to say. Um, what I am going to basically take away from them is what are they saying about sexuality for me? What are they saying about sexuality for, at least as I understand it, all of us? Um, which means I am going to put a hetero reading on, you know, queer uh, members of the queer community, which is not what we are supposed to do. But again, what I find 
what I find so important about this discussion, the, real, the reason why I'm going to talk about it instead of just letting it lie there completely silently, is because I think that this stuff does speak to me. Like, whether or not it was intended for my ears, whether or not it was intended for, you know, hetero folks like myself, whether or not I can be considered an ally, like, I don't presume to be able to answer any of these questions. None of them. What I can say is I find this stuff compelling. I find it interesting. I want to study it more. And I find that the conclusions that Foucault and Warner come to to be fascinating and important and striking. Striking in part because it helps me to understand the queer movement as it is happening now, and striking because it helps to contrast the queer movement as, as it is happening, happening now. So with all that by way of caveat, let's talk about this stuff. Let's dig into the way that the queer movement has sort of changed our understanding of love, has sort of addressed our societal expectations of what love and sexuality look like. Let's talk about what Foucault actually has to say here. Um, and I should stress also that the, you know, just further emphasizing how unacademic we're, we're dealing with here, these are interviews with Foucault. They're not even his published papers. Like, this is very much off the top of his head, you know, sort of taken by surprise by these questions, but this is stuff that he's obviously been thinking about, so it kind of works out. As much as these are presented to us as though they are, you know, important texts, etc., 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 I doubt Foucault thought of that in, at the time that he was being asked these questions. Um, so again, it just sort of drives home that the lines here are blurry. What constitutes academic thought, philosophical ideas, and what constitutes sort of pop culture ephemera is really blurry. Um, but the fact of the matter is, Foucault was a gay man, and he was very much studying the ethics of sexuality. Like, he, he was being asked these questions while he was working on the history of sexuality. He was thinking about this stuff. He was thinking about this stuff in his own life. He was thinking about this stuff in the greater culture at large. He was thinking about this stuff in the context of his studies. And I think that that gives him a really interesting insight, one that we can profit from if we care to. Um, now, the first essay that I wanted to include is... Friendship as a Way of Life. Um, and this is, again, a 1981 interview for Le Gay Pied. It's really important. Like, even the Sex, Power, and the Politics of Identity essay that we read later makes reference to it. So obviously this made a big splash when Foucault originally sort of made, answered these questions. Um, and I find it especially interesting and especially useful to talk about because... It's doing both of the things that we want it to do. It is talking about friendship, and it is talking about sexuality, and what's more, for what is probably the first time since the ancient Greeks, we are linking these ideas together, talking about friendship as it affects sexuality, and talking about sexuality as it influences our understanding of friendship. Um, this, I think, is something that we've largely overlooked in this class. The fact that the lines, the, the boundaries between these two sorts of relationships are, for the most part, porous. Um, they're complicated. It's not so simple as, you know, we are friends or we are lovers. Frequently, one becomes one or the other, and ch the changes may occur. Like, it's very, very tricky. Uh, but one of the things that I want to notice here is also how homosexuality relates to friendship, the way that Foucault talks about it here. Um, now, notice, like, 
one of the first questions that he asked, like we get this sort of initial discussion of the game PA. But the first question that I really want to talk about here is perhaps the problem is the age group of those who contribute it and lead it. The majority are between 25 and 35. So already the, the interviewer notices that Foucault is old by the standards of the magazine that he is that he is speaking on behalf of. Like, Foucault is a veteran member of the queer community even in 1981. Um, he is, to some degree, out of touch with whatever the youth are doing in these days, and the youth of the Le Gay Pied that we're talking about here are themselves probably in their 50s and 60s at this point, and are thus out of touch with whatever the kids are doing these days. And again, I'm not trying to be, like, derogatory about what the youth are doing. To sort of paraphrase what Foucault literally says here is, you know, young people are their own community. As he writes, or as he says, the more it is written by young people, the more it concerns young people. But the problem is not to make room for one age group alongside another, but to find out what can be done in relation to the quasi-identification between homosexuality and the love among young people. Another thing to distress is the tendency to relate the question of homosexuality to the problem of who am I and what is the secret of my desire. Perhaps it would be better to ask oneself what relations through homosexuality can be established, invented, multiplied, and modulated. The problem is not to discover in oneself the truth of one's sex, but rather to use one's sexuality henceforth to arrive at a multiplicity of relationships. And, no doubt, that's the real reason why homosexuality is not a form of desire, but something desirable. Therefore, we have to work at becoming homosexuals, and not be obstinate in recognizing that we are. The development toward which the problem of homosexuality tends is the one of friendship. Now, there is a lot to unpack here, especially given what we know about Foucault from his study on the history of sexuality as we discussed it at the very beginning of class. Notice that there are a couple of unexpected moves here on the part of Foucault. Like, Foucault was very quick to, to point out in the history of sexuality that the term homosexuality was an invention of the 19th century for the purposes of establishing mental illness. He knows that this is to some degree illusory. And again, this is one of those conversation points in the queer community that is really, really complicated. Because on the one hand, as Foucault and Warder identify, you know, this was a medical term used to set apart an entire group of people, to stigmatize them, as Warner puts it, um, to put a mark on their very identity that sets them apart and makes them the subject of shame and derision. On the other hand, both Foucault and Warner also acknowledge that sort of taking this stigmatism or stigma, taking this recognition that I am gay, I am homosexual, and owning it was in fact an important political tool in the development of queer identity. Um, by saying to the public at large, how can you blame me for my desires because I am gay? Um, because I am homosexual, because this is part of my identity. I didn't choose to be this way, in short. This has been a really important tool in the development of the political power for this group of otherwise sort of ostracized individuals. Um, it was really important, especially in the 70s and 80s, as Foucault is writing, to say, you know, this is who I am. You cannot blame me for who I am, and therefore stop restricting my rights. Stop ostracizing me for who I am. Um, 
Now, both Foucault and Warner are aware of both sides of this discussion about homosexuality. They are aware of both the artificiality of this distinction and the fact that it is really important to the identity of the movement as a whole, that it has become a tool for political power. But notice Foucault embraces it unapologetically here. Um, he says, we have to work at becoming homosexuals, which is something that is very contrary to both interpretations of this idea. If, in fact, homosexuality is a matter of stigma, then we wouldn't want to be that. Why would we work towards it? But if it is, in fact, a matter of, it is my identity, it is something that I am, why would we have to work at it? Why would we have to make ourselves do this? Why would we conform to this concept? But notice that Foucault has a fairly complicated way of, of sort of understanding this and, and recognizing this. Um, he is recognizing that, yes, there is something important about, quote, homosexuality to the formation of identity, but he isn't saying that homosexuality is his identity. In fact, he's very much pushing away from that. Um, he stresses that homosexuality is not a form of desire, but something desirable, something to aspire to in some sense. And he isn't, it doesn't seem like he is suggesting something along the lines of conformity, like, I am going to act gay in order to be treated as gay, so I am accepted as gay, and therefore there is this place in society that I have, like, carved out for myself. On the contrary, he's saying that this has a lot more to do in recognizing who we are becoming and shaping our relationships around this identity. Um, so to notice, like, the, the question that is immediately asked is, you know, was this what you already believed or have you discovered it over time? And Foucault responds, as far back as I remember, to want guys was to want relations with guys. That has always been important for me. Not necessarily in the form of a couple, but as a matter of existence. How is it possible for men to be together? to live together, to share their time, their meals, their room, their leisure, their grief, their knowledge, their confidences. What is it to be naked among men, outside of institutional relations, family, profession, and obligatory camaraderie? It's a desire, an uneasiness, a desire in uneasiness that exists among a lot of people. Now, Foucault is suggesting here that what he is actually aspiring toward is has roughly little to do with sexuality. Like, there's certainly a sexual element here. I don't want to downplay that. But the idea that being a homosexual is purely a matter of one's sexual preferences boiled down to the status of identity, that's an oversimplification that Foucault is simply not willing to accept or address. Um, that's the danger that he seems to be avoiding here. By contrast, he's talking about the real relationships that are involved here. What does it mean to be a man among men? What does it mean to be exposed to them, to be, quote, naked before them? Outside of the institutional situations that sort of allow for this, what does it mean to have a relationship with another man, period? Not in a sexual context, not necessarily in a homosexual context, not necessarily in any context whatsoever, what does it mean for a man and a man to have a relationship together? And this is why we end up talking as much about friendship here as we end up talking about sexuality and especially homosexuality. 
Um, so notice in the, the bottom of page 136, this long paragraph here, one of the concessions one makes to others is not to present homosexuality as anything but a kind of immediate pleasure, of two young men meeting in the street, seducing each other with a look, grabbing each other's asses, and getting each other off in a quarter of an hour. There you have a kind of neat image of homosexuality without any possibility of generating unease, and for two reasons. It responds to a reassuring canon of beauty, and it cancels everything that can be troubling in affection, tenderness, friendship, fidelity, camaraderie, and companionship. Things that our rather sanitized society can't allow a place for without fearing the formation of new alliances and the tying together of unforeseen lines of force. I think that's what makes homosexuality disturbing. The homosexual mode of life, much more than the sexual act itself. Notice what Foucault is describing here. We've got a lot to unpack, actually. On the one hand, notice the image. The two men meeting in the street, seducing each other with a look, grabbing each other's asses, and they're both done in 15 minutes. This was a surprisingly typical form of homosexual relationship, especially in the 80s. Um, like, it's not uncommon in the 60s and 70s either, but especially in Reagan, Reagan's 80s, like, the... Accomplishments of Stonewall in the 70s were sort of set back politically, and the moral majority, so to speak, or the silent majority of the 80s had kind of become a fearful, like, entity in their own right. So, for example, the, the gay writer um, Samuel R. Delaney, who was writing science fiction in New York back in the 60s, um, he mentions similar sort of interactions in his, his sexuality, that he would, like, go to truck stops and would be hiding behind trucks, and guys would be pleasuring each other there. And it would be very informal, and very just, like, you wouldn't even know the names of these people. You would have this sort of sexual congress, and literally in 15 minutes, everybody would be done, and then you'd be on to the next person. Like, there's something simultaneously very orgiastic about all this, because of its impersonality, because there is something indifferent about one's individual humanity in this case. There's something sort of animalistic about it in some sense. But it's also sort of a self-protection. Um, you required privacy. You required this sort of anonymity um, because there would potentially be political consequences if, in fact, you were caught. You could be arrested. You could be jailed. You could be potentially abused by the police. Um, as a result, anonymity was key in these circumstances, and the impersonality of these relationships was very important. Um, Foucault is very aware of these communities. Chances are he participated in several of them, and I call them communities very loosely here. Um, but notice, too, that as much as you know, these, perhaps even to our modern sensibilities, sound very strange and uncomfortable and you know unsanitary in some cases, as much as this is the case, Foucault says, you know, this was more comfortable to, like, modern audiences than the idea that men were, in fact, making relationships. Um, we would rather hear about, you know, a bunch of tawdry gay people getting each other off at a truck stop um, than we would hear about, you know, affection, tenderness, friendship, fidelity, an actual community of interpersonally care, caring and loving gay men interacting in this way. Foucault suggests that the mode of life is actually way more disturbing than the sexual act. 
Um, to continue, to imagine a sexual act that doesn't conform to law or nature is not what disturbs people, but that individuals are beginning to love one another, there is the problem. The institution is caught in a contradiction. Effective intensities traverse it, which at one and the same time keep it going and shake it up. Look at the army, where love between men is ceaselessly provoked and shamed. Institutional codes can't validate these relations with multiple intensities, variable colors, imperceptible movements, and changing forms. These relations short-circuit it and introduce love where there's supposed to be only law, rule, or habit. Foucault is actually going to spend a lot of time talking about the military, specifically in the First and Second World War, in Vietnam, in the major conflicts that he associates with Americanism as well as European culture at this time. Um, he recognizes that the sort of implicit necessity of the military is that there's going to be a whole bunch of guys together in very close contact, in very close quarters, and what's more, relying on each other emotionally. Uh, like, we sort of get this image of the, the, you know, soldier who is standing alone in front of the picture of the flag, who is, you know, proud and strong and accomplished. Um, but Foucault is instead painting a very different picture, one that we sort of have a picture of, about how, like, groups of soldiers form these very tight, very intimate bonds with one another in relying on each other for the sake of life and death, naturally they grow close. There's an intensity to their feelings for one another that is kind of difficult for us to wrap our brains around, but we accept it. What Foucault is suggesting is the lines are not clear here. And what's more, the fact that we are unwilling to sort of discuss the intimacy at stake in these sorts of environments among young men in the military shows us exactly how messed up our perspective actually is. We are more comfortable with the idea of casual sexual hookups at truck stops and on park benches than we are with the idea that there are groups of men, small groups of men, making intimate connections with each other, loving one another for all intents and purposes, sexual or not sexual, and making bonds that are deep and meaningful to them. What Foucault is effectively saying here is that friendship is the more powerful relationship here. Um, friendship is the thing that our society fears more than they fear the actual sexual bond. That's striking to me. And that's why this essay is called Friendship as a Way of Life. This is what Foucault is primarily interested in here. Homosexuality is interesting to Foucault not because it is a sexual phenomenon, but because it is a relational phenomenon, because it encourages relationships between men. And he also stresses that there is this sort of parallel change in the culture, that as friendships sort of disintegrate and disappear in the 17th and 16th centuries, so coincidentally is the occasion of homosexuality's prosecution increasing. The two things are happening simultaneously. At the same time as culture is rejecting the idea of close friendships among men, it is also recognizing that a great more homosexual relationships are coming about. The two seem for Foucault to be intimately connected. Um, as one rejects male friendships, so are one so is one asking, as he puts it, that you know, what are these men doing? Um, so let's look at the way that he actually discusses this on page one uh, one thirty eight and one thirty nine. 
Um, so we get the question, women might object, what do men together have to win compared to the relations between a man and a woman or between two women? And Foucault responds that there is a book that just appeared in the U.S. on the friendships between women. The affection and passion between women is well documented. In the preface, the author states that she began with the idea of unearthing homosexual relationships, but perceived that not only were these relationships not always present, but that it was uninteresting whether relationships could be called homosexual or not. And by letting the relationship manifest itself as it appeared in words and gestures, other very essential things also appeared. Dense, bright, marvelous loves and affections, or very dark and sad loves. The book shows the extent to which women's body has played a great role, and the importance of physical contact between women. Women do each other's hair, help each other with makeup, dress each other. Women have had access to the bodies of other women. They put their arms around each other. They kiss each other. Man's body has been forbidden to other men in a much more drastic way. If it's true that life between women was tolerated, it's only in certain periods and since the 19th century that life between men not only was tolerated, but rigorously necessary, very simply during war. So notice the contrast that he's drawing here. And again, like I obviously can't speak to your own relationships. If you as a woman have not experienced this, then obviously I can't talk to that. What I can say is that I was very aware of these sorts of relationships among women when I was an undergrad myself. Like, the sort of intimacy that you could see and the physical contact that Foucault is describing here seems pretty common to me among female friendships. This is something that is fairly tolerated, um, is sort of universally observed and acknowledged. Women have a sort of intimacy in friendship that is just kind of natural to them, that nobody questions, whether it's sexual or not, whether it's, you know, an intimacy that extends to physical pleasure or not, it kind of just doesn't matter to our society. Women can sleep in the same bed together and nobody questions this. Women can do each other's hair or help each other with their makeup and nobody questions this. Women, you know, hug and kiss one another and nobody questions this. But when men do these things, everybody gets nervous, everybody questions it, and all of a sudden the subject of homosexuality is very much being thrown around and questioned. You know, as we sort of discussed at the very beginning of class, any time that I talked about, you know, I have a friend who is a guy, I felt obligated to say, no homo. Um, just as, you know, in virtually every Hollywood movie these days, anytime that you are trying to explore male friendships, you have to draw very very specific barriers, very specific, uh, like, divisions between these men to indicate that there is no sort of sexual undercurrent here. We assume there is. We assume that any intimacy between men implies sexuality, and that's messed up. It's not something we necessarily assume and imply about women in the same situations. So notice, Foucault goes on, and equally in prison camps. You had soldiers and young officers who spent months and even years together. During World War I, men lived together completely, one on top of another, and for them it was nothing at all, insofar as death was present and finally the devotion to one another and the services rendered were sanctioned by the play of life and death. And apart from several remarks on camaraderie, the brotherhood of spirit, and some very partial observations, what do we know about these emotional uproars and storms of feeling that took place in those times? One can wonder how, in these absurd and grotesque wars and infernal massacres, the men managed to hold on in spite of everything. Through some emotional fabric, no doubt. 
I don't mean that it was because they were each other's lovers that they continued to fight, but honor, courage, not losing face, sacrifice, leaving the trench with the captain, all that implied a very intense emotional tie. It's not to say, ah, there you have homosexuality, I detest that kind of reasoning. But no doubt you have there one of the conditions, not the only one, that has permitted this infernal life where for weeks guys floundered in the mud and shit among corpses, starving for food, and were drunk the morning of the assault. Notice what he's stressing here. What makes homosexuality homosexuality? What makes homosexuality a mode of life for Foucault, and what therefore makes it valuable, isn't the sexual connection. It's the fact that this is a one of the few outlets that our society acknowledges and tolerates of men interacting with men, of men interacting with men on an intimate level. Notice he's saying, yes, in World War I, in World War II, these kinds of relationships were necessary for the basic functioning of these soldiers, for the basic humanity of these soldiers. There must have been intimacy. There must have been more than what we sort of passingly, hand-wavingly talk about here. There was a depth to the relationships between these men that we do not appreciate, and we largely don't want to. It makes us nervous. It makes us uncomfortable. We would rather characterize it as gayness, as sexual, than try and understand exactly what that intimacy looks like, what the difficulty of those circumstances must have involved. This is what makes us nervous. This is the fabric of society, and this is what Foucault is very interested in. This is what makes love so salient and what sort of queer relationships have especially been able to bring out, draw out of love. We are not just rejecting the taboo on sexuality between men and wet men, women and women, between, you know, these possible other genders or whatever the case may be. We are talking about a level of intimacy that is more acceptable now than it has been in any time before. Or at least Foucault hopes that that's what it's going to look like. That's what it's going to come to be. Um, I would like to say, finally, he concludes, that something well-considered and voluntary like a magazine ought to make possible a homosexual culture. That is to say, the instruments for polymorphic, varied, and individually modulated relationships. But the idea of a program of proposals is dangerous. As soon as a program is presented, it becomes a law, and there's a prohibition against inventing. There ought to be an inventiveness special to a situation like ours, and to these feelings, this need that Americans call coming out, that is showing oneself. The program must be wide open. We have to dig deeply to show how things have been historically contingent, for such and such reason intelligible, but not necessary. We must make the intelligible appear against a background of emptiness and deny its necessity. We must think that what exists is far from filling all possible spaces. To make a truly unavoidable challenge of the question, what can be played? Elsewhere, he talks about it in a slightly different context. In Sex, Power, and the Politics of Identity, he talks about creating pleasure, inventing pleasure. I think this is what he is getting at here in this discussion of friendship as of a way of life as well. What he is stressing is that while there has been a lot of effort towards making homosexuality tolerated or acceptable, while it is sort of guaranteeing rights for itself, what Foucault is worried about is that we've just created another potential box for relationships to be understood and fall into. What Foucault has been stressing this entire essay is that 
we as a culture, as a species, as people, need relationships that don't necessarily fall into the categories that are sort of guaranteed and protected for us. Um, we cannot just be bound to, I love my wife and I have, you know, intimacy on, on some non-sexual level with a friend. Which, again, you'll notice our entire class has been talking about love and friendship. We have been constantly, you know, interested in these two ideas. What Foucault is saying is that these aren't the only two relationships. And what's more, we need to address the fact that these are not the only two relationships. We need to recognize that these lines aren't real. That society does, in fact, draw these lines. That it in some ways enforces these lines, either not necessarily through like legislation or through punishment, but through the way that we talk about these things, through the limitations that our very you know consciousness imposes upon us. We, in some sense, conform ourselves to these concepts because they're the only ways that we can process our emotion, our feelings for other people. And Foucault is stressing that that is dangerous that that is not necessarily natural. That human relationships are far more complicated, far more fluid. And as a consequence, when we just create another relationship, create another category, when we say that the only relationships that men can have are like sexual relationships to women, or sexual relationships to men, or perfectly platonic, completely non-sexual, completely non-physical friendships, all we are basically doing is saying, okay, we've made a, a single, you know, unique category that now exists besides the other categories. We are not actually changing society's attitude towards the creation of new categories. We are saying there is one more tolerated relationship, not moving towards let us tolerate all kinds of relationships. So notice the way that he's talking about this at the beginning of Sex, Power, and the Politics of Identity on page 163. Uh, the question that is asked is, you suggest in your work that sexual liberation is not so much the uncovering of secret truths about oneself or one's desire um, as it is a part of the process of defining and constructing desire. What are the practical implications of this distinction? And Foucault answers, what I meant was that I think what the gay movement needs now is much more the art of life than a science or scientific knowledge, or pseudoscientific knowledge, of what sexuality is. Sexuality is a part of our behavior. It's a part of our world freedom. Sexuality is something that we ourselves create. It is our own creation, and much more than the discovery of a secret side of our desire. We have to understand that with our desires, through our desires, go new forms of relationships, new forms of love, new forms of creation. Sex is not a fatality. It is a possibility for creative life. A little further down, he's, he adds, you know, I think when you look at the different ways people have experienced their own sexual freedoms, the way they have created their works of art, you would have to say that sexuality, as we now know it, has become one of the most creative sources of our society and our being. My view is that we should understand it in the reverse way. The world regards sexuality as the secret of the creative cultural life. It is rather a process of our having to create a new cultural life underneath the ground of our sexual choices. We are, Foucault is sort of suggesting here, reversing the, the relationships, reversing the cause and effect. We are not, you know, making new sexuality in order to express some sort of creative desire. Instead, like, um, it is our creative desires that inform our interests in new sexualities. 
And this is the way that Foucault is talking about it here, as a plural, as a spectrum, as more than just exploring, you know, what it is that we secretly desire. In fact, Foucault rejects that idea outright. The language that is frequently employed in, you know, the queer community, this sort of coming out of the closet, this, you know, realizing what I already was, you know, this is frequently the language that is employed for a variety of reasons. On the one hand, it does have some, some grounding in truth, you know, much as the, the transgender community frequently adopts the language of, you know, I it was a man trapped in a woman's body or vice versa, you know, it very much implies this kind of I am becoming what I always was attitude. Um, and there is some truth to this. There is some accuracy in this particular description. It is also very politically useful. Again, as Warner points out in his The Trouble with Normal uh, opening, he stresses that, you know, this is a political tool. You cannot fault someone for wanting to be what they always were. Um, as Warner points out, you know, in the 90s, there's this big deal search for the gay gene of some kind, um, which would justify homosexuals claim that this is not a choice. You know, at the time, the religious right is very much condemning homosexuality on the grounds that people are choosing to violate the natural order, choosing to violate the will of God. Um, and the homosexual, the homosexual community is largely coming back and saying, no, we were born this way. We were always this way. And the legitimacy that they are searching for could very well come in the form of, oh, and here it is. Here is the genetic component that defines us as who we are. But you'll notice that both Warner and Foucault are pushing back against this idea. Rather than saying, yes, let's explore our secret desires, let's unrepress ourselves, let's, you know, discover the gay gene to legitimize ourselves, on the one hand, Foucault is saying, no, sex is about creativity. We are making ourselves, not discovering ourselves. We are becoming the people we want to be. We are deciding who we want to be. And there's nothing shameful about this. You know, as Warner puts it, you know, in his essay, he's characterizing it as we do not need to be ashamed at all of whatever we decide to do. We should not be in the thrall of a bunch of people who are trying to shame us for our sexuality. We do not need to explain ourselves. It is our right to do this. And anyone who is insisting on some sexual code of ethics, some, you know, purity that nobody else agrees with, this sort of normalcy that any deviation from is considered, you know, bad or shameful in some way, this is all societal nonsense in some way. This is all bullshit. Why should anyone feel constrained to these categories? Why should anyone feel like they have to justify their behavior by saying that this is who I am, by referring it to their identity? Both Foucault and Warner are pushing back on these ideas. Both of them are searching for a much more robust understanding of sexuality, its relationship to pleasure, its relationship to relationships, its relationship to people. We are not looking for new categories. We are looking for an abolition of categories. We are not looking for, you know, a new mode to express ourselves. We are looking for a mode by which any amount of expression is allowed and permitted. 
that's ultimately what we're going for here. That's what Foucault is searching for, and that's what Warner is searching for. That is not to say that they're saying open up the doors to all kinds of sexuality. Warner is very emphatic that there are certain kinds of sexuality that are, in fact, destructive. Rape is not acceptable, no matter what you know your secret desires may, in fact, imply. But talking about it in terms of secret desires just muddles the point. If, in fact, you have this consternation, what both Foucault and and Warner are sort of getting at is you have to find a way to express that that is within, you know, the bonds of society, but also you have to be free to express it, free to not be shamed by what you want. Maybe be shamed by what you do to get it, but do not be shamed by what it is that you want. Because all of us want things, all of us are sexual, all of us are, you know, trying to figure out our own identities, trying to determine who we want to be, as Foucault and Warner are both putting it, and none of us are any better than each other for this. The fact that you can somehow keep your sexuality confined to, you know, what is socially acceptable doesn't mean that you have the right to step on other people for not being able to do that or for not wanting to do that. Exploiting outrage for the purposes of political gain, that's what's truly dangerous. That's what's truly heinous here. Um, but we are, in fact, getting ahead of ourselves. What Foucault is very much emphasizing is that pleasure is malleable, that it is fluid, that it needs to be explored, that the boundaries of pleasure need to be explored and pushed forward. Which is why he ends up talking to his, to his sort of interlocutor about the S&M community, which at this point was just starting, starting to become kind of popular and, and a subject of some fascination to the public at large. Um, so the question that he's asked on the bottom of page 164, how do you view the enormous proliferation of the last 10 or 15 years of male homosexual practices, the sensualization, if you like, of neglected parts of the body and the articulation of new pleasures? I'm thinking, obviously, of the salient aspects of what we call the ghetto. Porn movies, clubs for S&M, or fist-fucking, and so on forth. Is this merely an extension into another sphere of the general proliferation of sexual discourses since the 19th century, or do you see other kinds of developments that are peculiar to this present historical context. Notice the question to start here. Like, I typically don't, you know, get ex especially excited about the interviewers. They tend to actually be fairly banal, and it's always kind of amusing to see, like, an interviewer confront a philosopher and just sort of, like, stumble against what it is that the philosopher is actually trying to talk about here. Notice that the question that's being asked is, is you know, all of these sorts of new developments in sexualities, sadomasochism, porn movies, fist-fucking, are these just an extension of sexual discourse in the 19th century? Like, is this just another set of categories, the way that Foucault talks about in the history of sexuality? Is this just another level of deviance, a prurient interest of the, the culture at large, you know, making another category for sexuality that is unacceptable, or is this something new? Is this, in fact, a breaking away from that paradigm? Now, notice Foucault's answer as well. Well, I think we'll, what we want to speak about is precisely the innovations those practices imply. For instance, look at the S&M subculture, as our good friend Gail Rubin would insist. I don't think that this movement of sexual practices has anything to do with the disclosure or the uncovering of S&M tendencies deep within our unconscious and so on. I think that S&M is much more than that. 
It's the real creation of new possibilities of pleasure, which people had no idea about previously. The idea that S&M is related to a deep violence, that S&M practices a way of liberating this violence, this aggression, is stupid. We know very well what all those people are doing is not aggressive. They are inventing new possibilities of pleasure um, with strange parts of their body, through the eroticization of the body. I think it's a kind of creation, a creative enterprise, which has as one of its main features what I call the desexualization of pleasure. The idea that bodily pleasure should always come from sexual pleasure is the root of all our possible pleasure. I think that's something quite wrong. These practices are insisting that we can produce pleasure with very odd things, very strange parts of our bodies, in very unusual situations, and so on. So, to clarify, the interviewer asks, so the conflation of pleasure and sex is being broken down. And Foucault responds, that's it precisely. The possibility of using our bodies as a possible source of very numerous pleasures is something that is very important. For instance, if you look at the traditional construction of pleasure, you see the bodily pleasure, or pleasures of the flesh, are always drinking, eating, and fucking. And that seems to be the limit of the understanding of our body, our pleasures. What frustrates me, for instance, is the fact that the problem of drugs is always envisaged only as a problem of freedom and prohibition. I think that drugs must become a part of our culture. As a pleasure, the interviewer asks. As a pleasure. We have to study drugs. We have to experience drugs. We have to do good drugs that can produce very intense pleasure. I think this puritanism about drugs, which implies that you can either be for drugs or against drugs, is mistaken. Drugs have now become a part of our culture. Just as there is bad music and good music, there are bad drugs and good drugs. So we can't say we are against drugs any more than we can say that we are against music. Notice. we got a lot to unpack here. Notice that Foucault initially doesn't necessarily respond to the interviewer's question, this idea that isn't in fact an extension of the 19th century. Foucault kind of disregards this. Um, instead, he is arguing that we shouldn't talk about the innovations these practices imply, and that we are once again not talking about you know, the sort of Freudian sense of sexuality as a sort of uncovering of repressed desires. What Foucault is talking about here is not repression or, you know, expressing one's latent personality coming out of the closet in some way. What he is talking about is real deal innovation, making new pleasure, finding and exploring the possibilities for pleasure that the body has. What he is talking about in in terms of the S&M community, is what he calls the desexualization of pleasure. Let's look at pleasure that isn't sexual. Pleasure that can come about through pain or the anticipation of pain. Pleasure that can come about through just touching parts of the body that are normally not associated with pleasure. Pleasure that is not associated with sex. Pleasure that is not associated with eating or drinking, as he stresses. And drugs seem to be a careful or a component of this pleasure as well. Now, I'm obviously going to get into very hot water if I start saying, you know, go have good drugs and, you know, go explore what are good drugs and bad drugs, because our society is not on the same page as Foucault here. Like, we do not consider drug use to be an acceptable societally, you know, functional way of experiencing pleasure or exploring pleasure, largely because there are incredible dangers involved with the use and misuse of drugs. Like, on the one hand, yes, we have legalized marijuana. Hooray! On the on the on that same hand, we have lots of legal drug use. Like, we have, you know, obviously alcohol has been legal for as long as, you know, the prohibition has not been in place. What's more 
beyond this, we clearly are fine with the use of, like, energy drinks or caffeine in various forms. Clearly, there are certain drugs that we don't even consider drugs that we are totally on board with. We recognize the, you know, possibility of a sugar high. Um, we recognize that, you know, changing our bodies in certain ways is totally acceptable and even encouraged. Like, people swear by their ability to use coffee to control their mood, control their emotions. Um, what Foucault is suggesting here is basically an extension of that kind of thinking. Well, what about hallucinogenics? What about, you know, something like uh, heroin or opium in a moderate and careful use? What about, you know, the use of other, you know, drugs that are out there to control our emotions, to control our feelings? You know, there is a long history for hundreds, even thousands of years of people using drugs to control their experiences, to control their emotions, and this being linked to the experience of new or at least novel pleasures. Foucault is saying we need to absorb this into our community, that the exploration of pleasure needs to stop being restricted as much as it is. Now, that is not to say that it is good to get totally whacked out on heroin to the point that you become totally addicted. No, on the, contra on the contrary, it's just this kind of exploration that would keep us from making those sorts of mistakes. Where drugs are prohibited, you end up becoming an addict or a prohibitionist. You either reject the, the use of drugs altogether, or you accept them to the point that they are you know, overused and therefore extremely dangerous. What Foucault is saying is we need something more moderate. We need to stop placing this taboo on drugs and instead explore how they could be positively used, how they could be potentially you know, used beneficially, and also not limited like, not preventing people from taking advantage of their use. Like, one of the things that I think of here are, are like, anti-anxiety medication or anti-depression medication, things that make us happy. People obviously use these things, um, what is the term? Recreationally. There are plenty of designer drugs, medical drugs, drugs that are being prescribed in certain cases and being regulated in very specific situations that are prohibited from being used recreationally. And yet, everyone knows that people use, you know, like Xanax or, um, like, uh, ADHD medication Ritalin to get a high. Um... We need to be aware of what that high could be. We need to know what benefits that could offer and what the limits of that could be, what the dangers of addiction could be, in order to be able to use this stuff for the purposes of pleasure, in order to understand what the possibilities of pleasure may include. This is what Foucault is effectively arguing for. He is saying that sexuality is just the tiniest corner of human pleasure and the exploitation of human pleasure. And we need to explore more. We need to be open to the possibility of S&M as a means of getting pleasure in a new direction. We need to be open to the possibility of drugs being a way of getting pleasure, as long as it is not also endangering our lives, causing us to, you know, potentially overdose and hurt ourselves. Um, but we also need to recognize that these identities are... Trixie 2. So, again, like, 
when the, the interviewer asks, the point is to experiment with pleasure and po its possibilities, Foucault answers, yes, pleasure must also be a part of our culture. We have to, when people say we have to liberate our desire, Foucault responds, no, we have to create new pleasure and desire will follow. We need to stop talking about ourselves as though we are naturally inclined to want certain things. No, we need to be willing to accept new experiences, to explore not desire, but pleasure, and let our desire follow. Now, the interviewer turns the conversation at this point. Is it significant that there are, to a large degree, identities forming around new sexual practices like SNM? These identities help in exploring such practices and defending the right to engage in them, but are they also limiting in regards to the possibilities of individuals? Notice the parameters of the question here, because Foucault is again going to change it subtly in his response, but the question itself is striking. What we are saying here is, are the identities being created here? Um, are the people who are branded, stigmatized as gay, as lesbians, as trans, as, you know, sadomasochistic, as, you know, drug using, like, are these identities themselves causing a restriction, preventing us from exploring our identity, exploring our pleasure in truly robust ways? And Foucault responds, well, if identity is only a game, it is only a, if it is only a procedure to have relations, social and sexual, pleasure relationships that create new friendships, it is useful. But if identity becomes the problem of sexual existence, and if people think that they have to uncover their own identity, and that their own identity has to become the law, the principle, the code of their existence, if the perennial question they ask is, does this thing conform to my identity, then I think they will turn back to a kind of ethics very close to the old heterosexual virility. If we are asked to relate to the question of identity, it must be an identity to our unique selves. But the relationships we have to have with ourselves are not ones of identity. Rather, they must be relationships of differentiation, of creation, of innovation. To be the same is really boring. We must not exclude identity if people find their pleasure through this identity, but we must not think of this identity as an ethical universal rule. Notice the distinction here. Insofar as identity is a game, as it is, it is a procedure to have relations, social and sexual, in so far as it is a game that brings about pleasure relationships that create new friendships, Foucault approves. It is useful, he says. But that's the caveat. Notice, identity is a tool in the personal arsenal for detecting and discovering pleasure. It is not a limiting factor. If identity becomes the problem of sexual existence, if people think they have to uncover their identity, if their identity becomes the law, then it will turn back to an ethics close to heterosexual virility. It is going to be a limiting factor. What Foucault is suggesting here is that identity exists in these two potential spheres. Insofar as taking on an identity becomes a tool for achieving pleasure, for achieving a sort of exploration of what pleasure can, can be, then it is useful. But the danger here is one that I tend to think Foucault has, I, has sort of explored or is rightfully wary of. Identity cannot be the law. It cannot be the tool by which we define ourselves. It cannot be the limit of what we are willing to explore. 
We talk about ourselves frequently, and in the queer community I hear this language being repeated often, as though we are trying to figure ourselves out, that we are this grand puzzle, this mystery, and that once we have done this, once we have successfully figured ourselves out, removed the repressive, inst or the re the pr repressive institutions that are preventing us from finding ourselves, then we will be free, free to be ourselves. And in some sense, I think that this is also what Foucault is saying. Like, in some sense, when we say we are discovering who we are, and we are not limiting ourselves to who we are, I think Foucault would agree. Yes, let's go ahead and explore what we can feel, what, we can, what pleases us, what makes us happy, what makes us, you know, what titillates us, what excites us in some sense. But in the sense that we are talking about this as being some kind of limiting factor, insofar as we are saying, I am X, but I am not Y, I am gay, therefore I do not get any pleasure from any, you know, contact with women, I am gay, therefore, you know, I cannot be X, Y, or Z, I am gay, but I am not, you know, interested in sadomasochism, interested in becoming or exploring, like, the pleasures that furries have, uh, all of this suggests a limitation. All of this suggests that the identity is being used not as a sort of springboard for exploration, but rather as a, you know, as a box that in fact imposes limitation. The sort of two-sided character of sexual identity here is important. Foucault is saying that it can be part of a game. It can be part of play, part of exploring pleasures, part of, you know, finding new ways of making relationships with people, finding new ways of, you know, exploring the way that we interact with others. Homosexuality as a way of exploring power relationships, as a way of exploring sexuality, as a way of exploring friendships, as a way of, you know, making bonds with others is good. But homosexuality as a category that people get boxed into, as a category that people understand people as being, as a category that people limit themselves to or limit others to, that's a problem. If we understand all gay men as being the sort of effeminate best friends in various romantic comedies, as being flamboyant or as being, you know, especially like effeminate in some way, if that's what homosexuality is limited to, that's not okay. Homosexuality as a means of having new relationships with other men or with other women for that matter, as we sort of carve out what exactly this means, that can be useful but it can't be a limiting factor. We cannot expect all gay men to look the same way. And in fact, Foucault is a little frustrated by this. Like, he mentions this whole business of the, the mustached clones, which was the sort of identity pattern that, that became very prevalent in uh, the 1980s especially, that you would have these guys dressing in leather, wearing the, the like porn stash of the 70s that we identify it with. And Foucault is sort of attentive to this, yes, there can be something interesting about this, but it is also dangerous to sort of fall into this category, to seek acceptance by becoming something predictable, by becoming something that everybody knows already. That's the danger here. When you conform to others' expectations for your life, homosexual, heterosexual, or otherwise, that's a problem. 
when you are looking to join a community be that will only accept you if you behave in certain ways, that's a problem whether it is a gay community or a straight community. Whether you are posturing in a way that is masculine for the sake of, you know, other dude bros, or if you are postu posturing in a way that is expressly flamboyant for the sake of other people in a queer community. Either way, it's a problem. Either way, it is limiting. Either way, it is not some expression, not some exploration, not some way of, you know, deciding who you are. That's dangerous. That's not healthy, not productive, not exploring in the way that Foucault is talking about it here. Um, now, what he sort of comes to, what he sort of realizes here, what he ultimately concludes in this, this discussion, in this essay, and again, like, I'm struggling with this one because, again, a lot of this is stuff that I have not personally experienced. A lot of this is stuff that I feel not uncomfortable talking about in the sense that I'm, like, uncomfortable talking about sexuality, but uncomfortable talking about because I don't feel like I am the person who has any right to speak on behalf of a community that I don't myself belong to. Um, where he ultimately takes this again is this subject of friendship. Um, so our interviewer asks about his earlier essay, uh, Friendship as a Way of Life, the Gay Pied. Um, you mentioned in an interview in the Gay Pied a year or two ago that what upsets people most about gay relations is not so much sexual acts per se, but the potential for affectional relationships carried on outside the normative patterns. These friendships and networks are unforeseen. Do you think what frightens people is the unknown potential of gay relations, or would you suggest that these relations are seen as posing a direct threat to social institutions? Foucault responds, One thing that interests me now is the problem of friendship. For centuries after antiquity, friendship was a very important kind of social relation, a social relation within which people had a certain freedom, certain kind of choice, limited, of course, as well as very intense emotional relations. These were also economic and social implications to these relationships. They were obliged to help their friends, and so on. I think that in the 16th and 17th centuries, we see these kinds of friendships disappearing, at least in the male society. And friendship become, begins to become something other than that. You can find, from the 16th century on, texts that explicitly criticize friendship as something dangerous. The army, bureaucracy, administration, universities, schools, and so on, in the modern senses of these words, cannot function with such intense friendships. I think there can be seen a very strong attempt in all these institutions to diminish or minimize the affectional relations. I think this is particularly important in schools. When they started grade schools with hundreds of young boys, one of the problems was how to prevent them not only from having sex, of course, but also from developing friendships. For instance, you could study the strategy of Jesuit institutions about this theme of friendship, since the Jesuits knew very well that it was impossible for them to suppress this. Rather, they tried to use the role of sex, of love, of friendship, and at the same time to limit it. I think now, after studying the history of sex, we should try to understand the history of friendship, or friendships. This history is very, very important. And one of my hypotheses, which I am sure would be borne out if we did this, is that homosexuality became a problem, that is, sex between men became a problem, in the 18th century. We see the rise of it as a problem with the police, within the justice system, and so on. And I think the reason it appears as a problem, as a social issue, at this time is that friendship had disappeared. As long as friendship was something important, was socially accepted, nobody realized men had sex together. You couldn't say that men didn't have sex together, it just didn't matter. It had no social implication, it was culturally accepted. Whether they fucked together or kissed had no importance. Absolutely no importance. 
Once friendship disappeared as a culturally accepted relation, the issue arose, what is going on between men? And that's when the problem appears. And if men fuck together or have sex together, that now appears as a problem. Well, I'm sure I'm right that the disappearance of friendship as a social relation and the declaration of homosexuality as a social, political, medical problem are the same process. Notice what Foucault is suggesting here. Friendship and homosexuality are, if not the exact same phenomenon, then certainly connected, a similar phenomenon, a phenomenon united by an underlying phenomenon of some kind. As friendship gradually went out of fashion in the 17th and 18th centuries, and as homosexuality became more and more lambasted, it's clear that these male-to-male -male relationships were being more closely scrutinized. More power was being executed against them. And I think that this connects to a lot of what he was saying earlier about how, you know, women friendships have not received that level of close scrutiny, that a certain amount of physical contact and intimacy has always been welcome to female friendships, but also a recognition that, like, the rise of homosexuality in our culture without the the sort of parallel rise of friendship in our culture may be dangerous and may be indicative of something that isn't necessarily true, isn't necessarily accurate, isn't necessarily completely understood. What Foucault is describing, what Foucault seems to be poking at in both of the essays here is that while homosexuality and the rise of homosexuality should be giving rise to a wide variety of new relationships, while it should be giving rise to a whole new understanding of the way that sexuality and pleasure are related to one another and the ways that sexuality, pleasure, and friendship are related to one another and the ways that intimacy can be expressed between men or across gender lines or however you want to understand it, increasingly homosexuality is perceived as just sexual perhaps as a way of life, as a sort of identity in its own right, but now that identity is becoming a limiting factor rather than a sort of explorational factor. Homosexuality is not a tool by which we explore the possibilities of pleasure, the possibilities of intimacy, the possibilities of relationships, the possibilities of friendships, but rather it is being just cordoned off, becoming a society unto itself. And as we've talked about with the subject of the internet, the internet, as much as it has been an opportunity for like-minded people to get together and talk about their ideas, it is also an echo chamber. Just as, you know, Lewis was talking about it with the, with the rise of Christianity and the discussion of friendship as this, you know, with friendship as simultaneously, you know, empowering others to express their opinions, to express their ideas, to sort of have their ideas challenged and questioned and discussed, it also becomes insular. It also becomes intolerant of outside opinions. If the internet is following that same pattern, if the internet is encouraging people to agree with each other in, in groups in ways that they haven't before, but insofar as it is also very intolerant of outsider opinions, insofar as it is very intolerant of deviations from what is accepted within that group, even if that group is itself not accepted by greater subgroups, that's a problem. And I think what is the part of the reason why I am reluctant 
to go chasing after, you know, reliable information from the queer community as it exists online. Why, you know, the 20, 2000s and 2010s seem especially opaque to me is because where Foucault was acknowledging this phenomenon is happening, I suspect it has only become more entrenched in the last 20 years or so. I think homosexuality has been codified to some degree, and that Foucault anticipated this codification, did not want it to occur, and was fighting back against it. And while Foucault, on the one hand, can be seen as, you know, talking about queer theory in a way that is, isn't acceptable to contemporary queer theory, isn't acceptable to, you know, the sort of discussion as it's happening today, I'm not sure how much of that is the fault of Foucault and how much of that is the fault of the discussion as it's happening today. It's complicated. And I'm certainly not informed enough to be able to weigh in intelligently one way or the other. I see, personally, that same lack of social acceptance for friendship, that same inability to explore one's relationships in my own life and in my own culture, as Foucault saw back in the 80s. If anything, I think the internet is contributing to more ostracism of unacceptable paradigms, not less. And I think the sort of emphasis that Foucault is making on exploring pleasure, on using identity as a means to pleasure and not the other way around, I think that that's been lost in the process. That instead, the boxes have become stronger. The walls between different groups of people are becoming more difficult to break down. And while new groups are springing up, and this intersectionality discussion is growing and maturing and changing all of the time, I think that that fundamental assumption that Foucault was so resistant towards, this idea that, you know, we are discovering ourselves, the idea that we are, you know, finding out who we are instead of expressing and exploring who we could be, what we want, or, or what we could enjoy, um, insofar as Foucault is not interested in desire, except as it springs from pleasures that we are in fact exploring and indeed creating, I think that that element is lost. And the other element that I do definitely want to talk about is the one that Warner talks about, namely shame. Um, we're not going to get into the whole essay. A lot of the ideas are, are very similar to what we talked about in Foucault and I sort of talked about as we were exploring the discussion of Foucault. Um, but the one thing that I definitely want to sort of touch on here is the subject of shame and political power as it is exploiting shame. Um, again, this is the chapter that Warner calls The Ethics of Sexual Shame. Um, and what he is very much sort of exploring and discussing here is shame as a tool, shame as something that power structures are using to sort of condemn, oppress, and again, sort of box off. And the obvious example that he's using here is, weirdly enough, the Clinton trials in the 90s. It was very recent to him, and as a consequence, you know, it was very sort of interesting. Um, to Warner as, you know, being indicative of what's going on in our culture, both as it applies to, you know, the, the queer community, but also as it applies to any sort of perceived sexual deviance of any sort. Um, and that's what he calls sexual McCarthyism. Um, now, our perspective on the Clinton impeachment is has taken a kind of different 
form, I think. In 1999, I think Warner was fairly apt in describing both the sort of sexual McCarthyism of Starr and the Republicans and sort of using sexual shame as a political tool to sort of discredit the president, discredit the, the Democratic left, to discredit, like, all of their political opponents for the sake of getting cheap political points. Like, I don't think anybody was actually convinced that Clinton was going to be imp impeached on the grounds of his sexual liaisons. Like, there's certainly no precedent for that. And in the 90s, it certainly wasn't, you know, it certainly wasn't a terribly great danger. Like, as somebody who lived through this, you know, I don't think anybody was really, really scared or really, really convinced that the president even should be drummed out of office for what he had done. Um, but at the same time, our culture now in the 2010s, when we look back at, you know, Clinton and his indiscretions, we tend to understand it more from the perspective of the Me Too movement, from fourth wave feminism, which perceives this as, you know, abuse of power, sexual violence in some sense. We do not understand this as President, uh, President Bill Clinton being victimized by the Republican Party who was looking for cheap political points, the way that Warner perceives it, we understand this as sexual as uh, sexual predation. Bill Clinton as using his position of power to coerce people into having sex with him, uh, abusing his wife and not being responsible for his relationships, being a womanizer in short. We see him as a serial harasser, a serial adulterer, and not as the victim of the political process. Which I need to clarify, because Warner understands Clinton as being virtually in the same category as the queer community, i.e. being ostracized for their sexuality or their perceived sexual deviations from what is acceptable. What Warner is getting at is shame as a tool. And our perspective on shame has changed. In the 2010s, shame has become the weapon of the left, not the weapon of the right. Um, shame has become the way that, you know, the victims of rape or the victims of sexual assault uh, sort of bring their their grievances, bring the to attention the, the misbehavior of these people. Social shame is the way that we, you know, take people like Bill Cosby to account when the justice system fails. Maybe we can't get him arrested, but we can drum him out of the popular sphere. We can, you know, shame him so poorly that he is forced to retire. Shame, you know, the people who employ him to the point that they are no it is no longer economically sound. And I want to sort of talk about this. Uh, because, again, this way that shame has changed, it isn't something that Warner could have anticipated, and Warner is, by this logic, a dinosaur. He is, you know, out of touch with the way that we understand sexuality. But I want to stress Warner's position because I think that it is important, I think that it is insightful, and I think this movement of shame from right to left may itself be really dangerous in its own right. So let's talk about this. On the one hand, let's look at what he actually has to say about shame. Um, what he basically breaks down here, the paradigm that he's, he's discussing is probably best ex explained in his little subsection on the hierarchies of shame. Um, 
So he says, what can we learn here about the politics of sexual shame? What exactly are the connections among the garden variety embarrassments of sex, the spectacular crises of sexual McCarthyism, and the stigmatized identities of the gay movement? This question requires more thoughtful consideration than the blanket label sexual McCarthyism might suggest, but the connections, however complex, are real. Failing to recognize that there is a politics of sexual shame, I believe, leads to mistakes in each context. It confuses individuals, cowing them out of their sexual dignity. It leaves national politics pious and disingenuous about sex, and it reduces the gay movement to a desexualized identity politics. Again, one of the things that Warner kind of stresses throughout this is that the queer movement has had this tendency towards aiming for respectability and therefore kind of dissociating itself from its own movement. Um, in the 90s, the gay movement is very much about, you know, a bunch of respectable, like, gay men in ties and, and jackets or sweaters and, and, you know, slacks saying, you know, homosexuality is an identity, not sex. I am not the same as that guy who is giving blowjobs in the parking lot. I am not the same as, you know, those guys who are exchanging, you know, favors through the wall of a truck stop. Um, and in, so talking about it this way, Warner is pointing out that, if anything, they're trying to achieve respectability and legitimization in the public eye at the expense of what is essentially an arm of their movement. They're cutting off ties with a apparently, you know, disreputable queer community in order to justify themselves by becoming more like heterosexual or and heteronormative white society. Like they're saying, you know, we are like you. And that's something that Warner is not happy about. Um if anything, he is arguing that they should be arguing on behalf of the entire queer movement. All of this sort of pleasure in all of its forms. We should be destigmatizing, you know, the, the truck stop situation. The same Delaney, you know, having sexual congress in, in the parking lot. Not stigmatizing it more for the sake of achieving political points. That's part of shame too here. Um, so what he says on page 25 of the, the actual like, book, this is page 14 of the PDF, the mistake in each of these cases is a fundamental failure to understand the politics of sexual shame. In an influential 1984 essay called Thinking Sex, Gail Rubin suggested that the whole gamut of conflicts over sex of the kind that crop up in every corner, from office gossip and school board disputes to the highest levels of national and international policy, demonstrates a common dynamic. Sex has a politics of its own. Hierarchies of sex sometimes serve no real purpose except to prevent sexual variance. They create victimless crimes, imaginary threats, and moralities of cruelty. Rubin notes the criminalization of innocuous behaviors such as homosexuality, prostitution, obscenity, or recreational drug use is rationalized by portraying them as menaces to health and safety, women and children, national security, the family, or civilization itself. These rationalizations obscure the intent to shut down sexual variance. Now notice... Warner is not arguing against shame. Like, he stresses at the beginning of the essay, which is, again, something that I find sort of not discussed in contemporary sort of queer discussion, the fact that you can't get rid of shame. Like, shame is a part of sexuality. And in fact, he quotes Adorno as saying that shame is connected to the spiciness of sex. To get rid of shame would be ultimately to get rid of sex. So Warner is not arguing, let's get rid of shame. 
what he is arguing is let's get rid of shaming. Let's get rid of using shame for political ends, using shame to shut down people, act activities, you know, to get political points or to cause, you know, people to have to retire from the public sphere. So he drives at this whole category system of, you know, good, normal, and natural sexual relationships and bad, abnormal, and unnatural sexual relationships. These are the hierarchies that Rubin sort of draws out here. So heterosexuality is good, it's normal, it's natural, while homosexuality is bad, it's abnormal, it's unnatural. Married sex is good, unmarried sex is bad. Monogamous is good, promiscuous is bad. Procreative is good, non-procreative is bad. Non-commercial versus commercial, or in pairs versus alone or in groups, or in a relationship versus casual. There is an entire list here. And what Werner stresses is that nobody is on just one or the other side of the list. That's just not the way people work. Like... President Clinton was a heterosexual married man having unmarried sex in a, in a sort of power structure environment. That means that he was taking fairly conservatively from the bad or abnormal category, but it was precisely those elements that everybody was upset about. Like, it is precisely the fact that it is outside of the norm that it is rejected. But the fact of the matter is... Nobody is purely on the left side, not the people accusing him, not the people getting outraged, not the people who, you know, were just sitting at home watching their televisions. Like, sometimes people have sex outside of marriage. Fornication is a fairly normal practice in our culture. It is still, however, sort of demonized and is considered sort of external to the married relationship. Um... Lots of people use sex toys, and yet it is frequently shamed or sort of like, you know, discredited in some way. What Warner is arguing here is that nobody is in a house strong enough to throw stones at others. Everybody likes stuff outside of the normal, and if they don't, that's fine, but it's certainly nothing to brag about. Like... Why would you want your only sexual relationship to be hetero, married, perfectly monogamous, perfectly procreative, perfectly, you know, without using birth control, without using toys, without using, you know, like, why? Who cares? What does it matter? So what he says is Bill Clinton got on the wrong side of several of these. He had sex outside of marriage, he did so promiscuously, and in public, the Oval Office. Actually, Clinton and Lewinsky were lucky. If that blowjob had taken place just across the Potomac River in Virginia, it would have been a felony. And even in the District of Columbia, it was illegal until 1992. But the scandal had less to do with legal technicalities than with the taboos behind the law. And although there were doubtless many other grounds for thinking him unethical, his betrayal of private trust, his self-satisfied enjoyment of power, these, you'll notice, are the things that the 2010s are getting especially upset about. These are the ways that we understand Clinton today, not as, you know, like, wanting to have sex in the Oval Office, but rather taking advantage of his position of power, which is, in fact, unethical. There can be no doubt that the scandal came from the common categories of deviance. In the 90s, nobody was mad at Clinton for taking advantage of his position of power. What they were mad about was the fact that it was panties, the fact that it was adultery, the fact that it was in the Oval Office, God forbid. Like, that's what's so upsetting to 
apparently this community of outrage. That's what the Republicans were harping on. They were discrediting him not for the ethical breaches, they were discrediting him for these supposed sexual breaches. The fact that his sexuality was deviant, abnormal in some way. And this is what Warner is getting at. This is why Clinton's situation is similar to the queer community in the 1990s. As he puts it on page 32, uh, like when he's describing how the sex the queer community is dissociating itself from the people they themselves consider deviant, the people in truck stops, the people in parking lots. He, he says, on top of having ordinary sexual shame, and on top of having shame for being gay, the dignified homosexual also feels ashamed of every queer who flaunts his sex and his, I'm not going to say it, making the dignified homosexual's stigma all the more justifiable in the eyes of straights. On top of that, he feels shame about his own shame, the fadedness of which he is powerless to redress. What's a poor homosexual to do? Pin it on the fuckers who deserve it. Sex addicts, bodybuilders in Chelsea or West Hollywood, circuit boys, flaming queens, dildo dykes, people with HIV, anyone who magnetizes the stigma you can't shake. The irony is that in this culture, such a response will always pass as sexual ethics. Larry Kramer and other gay moralists have made career out of it, specializing in what Goffman calls in-group purification, the efforts of stigmatized persons not only to normify their own conduct, but also to clean up the conduct of others in the group. This is the problem for Warner. Not, you know, the identity, not the, the ethical issues. Yes, those are to be dealt with in their own rights. But what is crucial here is that we in accepting respectability for a certain subsection of the queer community, we are drumming out the others. The problem here is the shaming. The fact that we are rejecting certain sexual attitudes, certain perspectives, and as a consequence, we are removing these people from the acceptable line. It's fine to be gay, we are arguing, as long as you're not, you know, having totally unrestricted sex in a parking lot somewhere. Like, that's just gross. What Warner is saying is, why? Why is it gross? Why are we selectively deciding what is sexually acceptable and what is sexually not acceptable? Today, maybe we have achieved something closer to what we're describing. Again, it seems like the main line between what is acceptable and unacceptable is purely a matter of consent, which is a pretty decent ethical basis for our sexual ethics, for our sexual politics. But the fact is that sexual shame still exists. That you can, in fact, shame and discredit someone not just for their ethical violations, but for their sexual deviance in some way. It is still too shameful for a political figure to be a furry, or to engage in S&M, or to, you know, be, participate in orgy, as legal and ethical as such behavior might be in the grandiose sexual politics of the world. That's the trick. The image that I want to drive home here, the image that I find especially powerful uh, in what Warner is describing and what Warner is sort of discussing um, in, in like the positive contrast to this politics of shame uh, appears on page 34 and is again a sort of relic of an older queer community that probably doesn't exist nearly as much as it used to. Um, 
So starting on page 33 under the Ethics of Queer Life, he says, Defensiveness about sex and sexual variance is most common in public or official contexts. In many other circles, the idea of a gay man or lesbian posing as too mature or too respectable for mere sex is held to be r ridiculous. For all the variety of queer culture and all its limitations, it is possible to find, running through its development over the past century, and especially in its least organized and least respectable circles, an ethical vision much more at home with sex and the indignities associated with sex. Nowhere, after all, are people more aware of the absurdity and tenacity of shame than in queer culture. That's why the official gay organization's pious idea of a respectable, dignified gay community seems so out of keeping with the world those organizations claim to represent. In the common gossip of friends catching up on girlfriends, in the magazines and videos that are sold and traded around and poured over, in the bars where hair of all kinds gets let down, in personal ads that declare tastes hitherto unknown to man, in scenes where some mad drag queen is likely to find the one thing most embarrassing to everyone and scream it at the top of her lungs, in radical fairies gatherings and S&M workshops, in these and other scenes of queer culture, it may seem that life has been freed from any attempt at respectability or dignity. Everyone's a bottom. Everyone's a slut. Anyone who denies it is sure to meet justice at the hands of a bitter, shady queen. And if it's possible to be more exposed and abject, then it's sure to be only a matter of time before someone gets there, probably on stage and with style. The fine gradations of nerviness that run through this culture measure out people's willingness to test the limits of shame. In these scenes, people try to imagine living without the sacrifices that dignity by community standards commonly entails. Across town, where the black tie fundraiser is going on, that's where to find talk of dignity, if you have a taste for that sort of thing. This is what I want to stress here. This is what dignity means to him. And this is what shame should not be. The ideal that he is presenting here is a world where we are all equally shamed where we all are bottoms, where we all are engaged in deviations, where we all have gross fetishes, where we all have, you know, d tastes and desires outside of the pale of what is considered normal and acceptable socially in that hierarchical sense, where we all look at each other and recognize that we are all engaged in the same ridiculous interest in sexuality which can never be rendered dignified. There are two kinds of dignity that Warner is talking about here. And the difference between these two kinds of dignity is incredibly important. Um, so look on page 36 of this paragraph here. For this reason, paradoxically, the ethic of queer life is actually truer to the core of the modern notion of dignity than the usual use of the word is. Dignity has at least two radically different meanings in our culture. One is ancient, closely related to honor, and fundamentally an ethic of rank. It is historically a value of nobility. It requires soap real estate doesn't hurt either. The other is modern and democratic. Dignity in the latter sense is not pomp and distinction, it is inherent in the human. You can't, in a way, not have it. At worst, others can simply fail to recognize your dignity. These two notions of dignity have opposite implications for sex. The most common judgments about sex assign dignity to some kinds, married, heterosexual, private, loving, as long as they are out of sight, while, other, while all other kinds of sex are no more dignified than defecating in public and possibly less so. That kind of dignity we might as well call bourgeois propriety. In what I am calling queer culture, however, there is no truck with bourgeois propriety. If sex is a kind of indignity, then we're all in it together. 
and the paradoxical result is that only when this indignity of sex is spread around the room, leaving no one out, and in fact binding people together, that it begins to re resemble the dignity of the human. In order to be consistent, we would have to talk about dignity in shame. That, I think, is a premise of queer culture, and one reason why people in it are willing to call themselves queer, a word that, as Eve Sedgwick notes, emblazons its connection to shame in a way that still roils the moralists. But I'm speaking now of sluts and drag queens and trannies and trolls and women who have seen a lot of life, not of the media spokesmen and respectable leaders of the gay community. What Warner is saying is that these two kinds of dignity, the respectability that goes along with soap and real estate, is a lie, is just bourgeois propriety, and it needs to be drummed out. The idea that one person is more dignified than another in the sense of their sex life is cleaner, more sanitary than another, is a bad idea and should be rejected. What the queer community, as Warner sees it, what the drag queens and, you know, the people in the sort of, like, bars where all sorts of hair are being let down, what they are keenly aware of is that we are all in undignified, we all have tastes outside the norm, we all are subject to this ridiculous shame of sexuality, and as a consequence, we all are equally dignified in that Kantian sense, the sense where everybody is equal, where everybody has the dignity of being human, where everybody is valuable and precious and significant and has this dignity, this ability to stand up straight and tall and be the person they are, not because of whatever their sexual practices are, but because they are human and because we are all sexual and because we are all as undignified and as dignified as these would suggest. We are all bottoms. We are all perverts. We are all deviants. And the sooner we admit this, the more we can actually get over ourselves and enjoy ourselves, create the kind of pleasure that Foucault was talking about. We cannot succumb to that bourgeois propriety. We cannot poke, pick people out of a crowd and shame them for what they want, although we can shame them for how they go about doing it. Again, there's a difference between the shame resulting from ethics and the shame resulting from sex. What Warner is saying is stop shaming people for their sexual predilections, for their desires, even for how they choose to practice it, if that is not a violation of ethics in its own right. Stop making people to be undignified and instead recognize we are all equally involved in this dignity. We are all sexual, we are all perverts, we are all interested in things beyond the pale of what is normally socially acceptable. And a good thing, too. Let's unify ourselves by our shame, and in not shame one person out of a crowd. That, I think, is really important. It's probably something that we're getting better at, I think. I don't think we're there yet, though. I think we are getting closer, but I also think that our, especially on the internet, using shame as a weapon is not necessarily something that has gone away. Yes, we had our crusade against slut-shaming, and it was very successful, and I'm happy to say that like now that is only something that is done in certain conservative circles, or I don't even know. Like It's much less prevalent than it was, that's for sure. But at the same time, that's not the end of the battle. 
it's time to sort of recognize how we are using shame as a weapon, when it is acceptable to use shame as a weapon, and very consciously use shame as a weapon only in certain cases. If we can all get over ourselves, if we can all sort of get past sexual shame as sexual, then we can probably enjoy ourselves a whole heck of a lot more than we would have under the fear that that sort of politics of sexual shame that Warner is describing here threatens us with. That's what I think the queer community is very much striving for. And insofar as that's the case, I would consider myself a member of the queer community. I do want to fight for this shameless sexuality, for a world where we do not have to worry about you know, being called out for our predilections or preferences, where we all admit that we are all bottoms, that where we all admit that we are all perverts. And as much as it may be insane for me, who a, a professed Christian, to say, yes, I am part of the queer community in this sense, remember that Christianity has said this as well. Remember that the ideal of sexuality was they were naked and unashamed in the Garden of Eden. And as much as I have you know, said that Christianity can't go get over its sort of attitude towards the sinfulness of homosexuality, what it can get over and should is judgment. Like, Jesus is very clear about that. You know, judge not lest ye be judged. That's exactly the, the kind of ethics that Warner is talking about here as well. Shame not lest ye be shamed. So I don't think there's a contradiction I don't think there's any profit in Christians shaming others for their sex, not by any extent of the imagination. It's not biblical. It's not moral. It's wrong. Let's all just admit, we're all sinners, we're all perverts. And maybe we can actually get on with our lives. At any rate, I hope I haven't overstepped myself too much on this particular lecture. Um, again, like I tried to avoid making broad sweeping generalizations about anyone in this situation, but I have probably failed to some degree. I do think Foucault and Warner are really interesting. I do think that we need to remind ourselves of these things in our contemporary conversation and sort of think about these ideas of what pleasure could be, of what shame is being used to do, um, of what sexuality could essentially become, and do our best not to draw strict limits about it or the identities that we adopt as we explore these things. Um, I think that these are valuable insights to some degree, but it's certainly not the last word on the matter, um, which it's kind of disappointing that this is you know, the one time we get to talk about this stuff, and that therefore it will kind of be the last word in our class. Suffice it to say that this is a good jumping-off point. If you want to know more, by all means, go hunt down the internet. Go find some other sources. If you find anything really good, let me know about it. I'd love to teach this stuff. Um, for next time, we're going to close out our class. This is our second-to-last lecture, and the next one will be the last one. Um, so we are going to take another stab at Foucault's history of sexuality, and we'll see what his conclusions are there. I look forward to talking with you soon.